our series by looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 to 15. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 to 15. Let me read our text for us. For everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than them to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's good gift to man. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. Although I haven't watched it in a while, one of my favorite movies growing up has always been Forrest Gump. If you're unfamiliar with this movie, this fantastic movie that I think everyone should watch, it tells the fictional and heartwarming story of a simple man from a small town who overcomes great odds to become an American icon. The story famously begins with Forrest, who was played by Tom Hanks, recounting episodes of his life to strangers on a bench at a bus stop. He starts with his early years as a young boy, and despite significant challenges and limitations, Forrest manages to lead an extraordinary life, unwittingly influencing several significant historical events and encountering various historical figures along the way. For example, he becomes an all-American football player for Alabama. He unintentionally gives Elvis and John Lennon ideas for their music. He becomes one of the world's most famous ping pong players. He meets multiple presidents in his life. And if that weren't enough, he's awarded the Medal of Honor after fighting in Vietnam. Then he helps start a multi-million dollar shrimp company. And he eventually earns millions by being an early investor in Apple. But despite all of the wonderful and feel-good moments of triumph in the movie, 
Along the way, it also depicts some of the saddest moments in Forrest's life. Forrest describes the many hardships he faced. For example, as a young boy, he was diagnosed with a low IQ and he was almost not admitted into school. And he had to wear leg braces because of a deformity in his back, being labeled a freak and often attacked by his peers. He also recounts stories about watching his best friend die on the battlefield, losing his mother and the love of his life to illness. He recalls getting injured in war while trying to save his fellow soldiers and later helping close ones through addiction and thoughts of suicide. He recounts the constant heartbreak and sorrow he experiences with his childhood sweetheart, Jenny, whom he is constantly trying to save from being taken advantage of or from falling off of the deep end. What makes Forrest Gump such a great movie is that it shows an honest and complete picture of human existence. It reminds us that life not only offers wonderful seasons of soaring triumphs and joys, but it also has dark seasons of intense tragedy and sorrow. As one critic wrote, the performance of this movie is a breathtaking balancing act between comedy and sadness in a story rich in big laughs and quiet truths. Although most of us won't experience the extraordinary feats and accomplishments Forrest does in the movie or face the same tragedies, the audience is certainly meant to resonate with its depiction of life. And that reality is that life is complex. There is an ebb and flow to it that shuttles us back and forth between joy and sadness, good times and bad times. And this ebb and flow is something often out of our control. As Forrest famously says in the movie, life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're gonna get. And as we come to this passage in Ecclesiastes, Solomon appears to be saying something similar. Solomon will highlight that life is composed of joy and sorrow, building and destroying, living and dying. And none of us can escape these realities. And each of these things come into our lives, not always when we want them to, or when it's most convenient, not when we deem them appropriate and good, but when God, the creator and ruler of the universe and over our lives deems them appropriate. And at the end of the day, Solomon is saying that the sooner we come to grips with this fact of life and accept it, the happier we will be. In other words, as one commentator puts it, no one can be happy who has not come to grips with the reality that life is full of changes and sorrows, as well as continu con uh, continuity and joy. We must accept that we are mortal and governed by God's time. So as we jump into our passage, starting in this first section and verse one, Solomon provides a general statement or observation that sets the stage for the following section in verses two to eight. And these verses is in two to eight is really a poem and it's particularizing this opening statement in verse one. 
In verse one, Solomon says, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. This noun for season in Hebrew, it denotes this idea of appointed time or appointed hour. For example, it is the word used to indicate the divinely appointed or God-ordained time for the Jewish feasts. It's also used for the appointed times in the Jewish law for the months to begin. This term may also be, might also be related to another Hebrew noun for planning or for intention. Similarly, the word for time can refer to times that God has sovereignly assigned for his creation and his creatures. For example, the time for rain, a time for judging the nations in Ezekiel 30, even the time when the mountain goats are born. See this in Job 39, when God responds to Job and says, Job, can you be like me? I'm the creator who sustains everything. I even determine when the mountain goats are born. It could also refer to the time for the harvest that God has ordained. It can refer to food being ready in its season. So in light of this, verses two to eight, they appear to refer to God's appointed timetable for every human activity and experience on this earth. And this idea that all of these times and activities are appointed by God is reinforced in verse 11 which says that God has made everything beautiful or it could be rendered appropriate or right in its time. And so before we jump into these verses in verses two to eight, I think it's important to note that as we go through them, that Solomon is not necessarily commending, prescribing, or even commanding any of these things in particular. Sure, some of these things we'll see are obviously better than others, Instead though, Solomon is really giving a general descriptive account of the activities and experience that make up human existence. And the main point we don't want to miss is that God, not us, is in control of this world and our lives, and he ordains everything that comes to pass. And this sets up Solomon's conclusion and advice at the end of our passage and how we should respond in light of this sobering truth. But before we get there, we'll start in verse two. And running all the way down to verse eight, we're given 14 pairs, these 14 pairs of contrasting or opposite activities appointed by God, which contain the rhythms of life that most, if not all of us experience under the sun in this broken and fallen world. In verse two, we're given the first pair of opposites that all human beings experience in their life. Solomon says there's a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. Here we see these first two pairs encompassing really the entire cycle of life. Whether you are a human being or whether you're a plant, this is the beginning and the end, or there's a beginning and an end to our existence and we cannot control it. God has appointed it, and we don't know when it's going to happen. Just as you did not choose to be born or when you, would, when you would be born, you do not choose when you will die. We don't know the day or the hour, but God has appointed a time for each of us to die. It is inevitable. 
Just as planting and plowing are carried out in their appropriate seasons, our birth and death happen in God's timing. And the wise and mature person lives in light of this truth. The wise person acknowledges that he or she does not have ultimate control of their mortality. And the quicker we accept this truth, the better and wiser we will become. And the more we refuse to accept it, the more foolish we will become. Since Julie and I got married, we've been watching what I think are the most culturally significant movies of our time. And this is because she hasn't seen uh, most of these movies. Uh, It started with Lord of the Rings when we were dating. When we got married, we moved on to Marvel. And recently we've been watching all of the Star Wars movies. So far, we've made our way through the originals. Uh, We went through the prequels as well. And although people don't like the prequels as much, which I can totally see why the acting is terrible, I think they're extremely important because what the prequels do is they take you through the tragic rise and downfall of Anakin Skywalker, right? The chosen one who would eventually become Darth Vader. And what makes things so tragic is that we first see Anakin as this innocent young boy without a care in the world. But even when we're introduced to him, we see something, right? And as the series goes on, we start to see this growing sense of fear within Anakin, this fear of loss, this fear of losing loved ones, this fear of losing prestige. And he has this obsession for obtaining control over his life and over the fates of his loved ones. And really, trying to control things that are out of his control, things that he cannot control. And we see this start to consume him throughout the series. And the real turning point for Anakin is when he learns in a dream that his wife, Padme, the person he loves the most is going to die. And Anakin, he's adamant that he's not going to let this premonition come true. And when he seeks counsel from Master Yoda, the wisest Jedi out of all of them, who's lived for hundreds of years, Yoda is deeply concerned for Anakin. And he warns him of the famous line that fear is the path, or sorry, fear of loss is a path to the dark side. Yoda has warned him before that this controlling, this all-consuming type of fear, it leads to worry, which leads to anger, which leads to hate, which leads to suffering. So Yoda reminds Anakin that death is a natural part of life. And the answer is to learn to let go of everything that Anakin fears to lose. It's out of his control. He can't contain it. So he has a choice to run a fool's errand and let something he cannot control consume him or to accept things and learn to let them go. And sadly, we know instead of accepting reality and being at peace, he becomes increasingly fearful. He becomes worrisome and angry and his anger and hatred end up turning him against the very people that he loves. And we watch him destroy his life and the life of those around him as a result. And this desire and quest to avoid death, it isn't limited to fictional stories like Star Wars. As I was doing some research on this, I remember a few years ago after Stepping down as CEO from Amazon, uh, Jeff Bezos, 
he decided that he would invest in a company called Altos Labs. And this company had planned to essentially reverse the process of death. And when this first came out, one headline I read said something like, Jeff Bezos has joined the quest for eternal life. And I thought, Mr. Bezos, let me save you some money and some time, because boy, do I have good news for you. It's called the gospel. But it comes as no surprise that many people throughout history have embarked on this vain quest for immortality. Apparently the first emperor of China who ruled in the third century BC was so terrified of death that he outlawed any discussion of it in his courts. According to a book titled Immortality by Stephen Cave, when the emperor learned of a prophecy concerning his death, he ordered his men to kill whoever was responsible for it. He was so desperate to avoid death that he eventually drank weird con concoctions throughout his life, and he would eventually die at 49 of mercury poisoning. We've always tried to avoid and control death. There's a story called the Epic of Gilgamesh. It's perhaps the oldest human writing that we have uh, in our existence. It tells the story of this king named Gilgamesh who is confronted with his own mortality after his best friend dies. Being hit in the face with this reality, he doesn't want to accept it. So he sets out on a journey for immortality. He eventually fails, but he comes to this conclusion at the end of his journey. He says, humans are born, they live, then they die. This is the order that the gods have decreed. But until the end comes, enjoy your life, spend it in happiness, not despair. Love the child who holds you by the hand and give your wife pleasure in your embrace. This is the best way for a man to live. Some people have noted the affinities between ancient Near Eastern texts like the Epic of Gilgamesh and the wisdom literature of the Bible. And in a way, Solomon is saying something similar here. Solomon is reminding us that life and death are a reality of our existence. We are fools to think that we can control when we are born or when we die, or that we can avoid death at all. Yes, on the one hand, he says, cherish your life and the people you love, but remember that they are not promised forever. Neither is your life. You have to be ready to let go when God decides it's time. So instead of running a fool's errand and being consumed with trying to control something you can't, you have to let it go and make the most of your life now, serving God and properly enjoying the good gifts he gives us while we can. And Solomon will talk about this in the final section of his passage where he gives us some of his concluding thoughts. But until then, let's continue to verse three. Here Solomon goes on to say, there's a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up. This first pair most likely refers to human life, either taking a human life or trying to preserve it. And it's important to note again that Solomon is not making prescriptive remarks, right? He's not trying to tell us to go kill. 
He's not making moral statements per se, but he is just merely asserting, right, that in this fallen world, destruction and killing, they're going to be a natural part of life and they cannot be avoided. The killing could possibly refer to perfectly legitimate ending of life, such as capital punishment or in the context of a just war. And the second pair of breaking down and building up might be connected to the first pair, having to deal with preserving and constructing or ending something by tearing it down. And then in verse four, Solomon traverses into the realm of emotions. He says, there is a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. In other words, it seems like he's saying there will be times in our lives when we experience deep grief and sorrow and there will be other times when we experience joy and we celebrate. When we're young, I, I think it's safe to say that most of us start off life pretty naive, pretty naive of especially the terrible things in this world. You think there's mostly and only just fun and life and joy, but as you get older, you get smacked in the face with this reality of death and loss and pain and sorrow. And when it first happens, either when you're a teenager for most of us or a young adult, you're shocked and it can be difficult to accept that this is a part of life. And it's a rude awakening for many people. But as you continue on in life, you see that that time of mourning passes eventually. You accept that this is reality. This is just something that we're all going to have to face and it's out of our control. And you see that there's laughter once again. And the cycle, it happens constantly in our lives. And ideally, we eventually reach the state of equilibrium where we acknowledge that not all good seasons last, but at the same time, we acknowledge that, or by the fact that not all bad seasons last either. We don't get too high, we don't get too low. Both our best and our worst days aren't permanent. There will be a time for weeping and mourning and a time for laughing and dancing. Even just looking back at the last 12 months of, of my life, a lot has happened in our family. Around this time last year, one of my aunties uh, in law, uh, she passed away. And it was a time for us as a family to come together and, and to mourn but just a few months later, it was time for Julie and me to get married and for our family to get together again, but this time to celebrate. And then after that, my sister got married a few months later where we all celebrated again. But then on Thanksgiving, we get together and we're having a good time and we feel a sense of mourning because we're not with our auntie who was there just the year before. So as we get older, we realize life is like this pendulum, right? It swings from one extreme to the other and everywhere in between. And this is something we can oddly find comfort in once we accept the reality of it. Yes, there is a time for weeping and for mourning, but it will soon pass and give way to times of celebration and joy. And even those moments we hold loosely Moving on to verse five, Solomon says, there was a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. So what does he mean here? 
Um, well, it's not exactly clear, and it's probably a reference to something particular to the historical and cultural context of his time. But one suggestion has been that Solomon is referring to the need to clear away stones from a field to make it suitable for agricultural use. Or it could refer to deliber deliberately ruining a wartime enemy's field by casting stones into it. <clears throat> the second pair in the verse says, there's a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. So this word in Hebrew, it refers to a gesture or it can refer to an action that denotes affection, right? Like hugging a person, right? Such, such as in the context of, of greetings or after not seeing someone for a long time, for example, it's used in Genesis 33 when Jacob and Esau embrace after years of being apart after Jacob fled because he stole Esau's birthright. And then in verse six, we read a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away. So this verse, it most likely deals with the possessions of this life concerning this first pair, especially it can also be translated there's a time to search, a time to give up something as lost. In other words, Solomon, I think is saying, there are times when we should try to find something valuable that we've lost, right? There is a proper concern for the material possessions of this life. They have value, right? So they should be cherished and they should be sought when they're lost. However, we recognize ultimately that we cannot hold on to things in this life forever. In other words, whether in this life or when we die, we'll no longer possess our possessions. So there are other occasions when we have to be prepared to give up our search or throw something away, whether we lose something unintentionally or whether we have to throw something away because it's broken or because it's old or because it just takes up too much space. And thinking about this, I'm reminded just about every time that I move to a new place. At this point in my life, I've had to move a lot, whether for school, whether for living out on my own as an adult, whether it's getting married. And every time I move, I experience this weird kind of emotional turmoil or just kind of roller coaster. Maybe you've experienced it before uh, when you're packing things up and you see things that you should probably throw away, but it breaks your heart to do it or you finally move in and you realize you have to consolidate because your place isn't big enough to store everything. Or maybe you just lost something and you can't find it. And I think the biggest regret that I have is when I moved one time back in college and when I moved, I just had so much stuff and I just had to get rid of a bunch of stuff that I ended up throwing away some very valuable baseball and basketball memorabilia. And I look back and I can't believe how foolish I was and how much I would really give to get all of those things back. And if I told you what they were, especially if you're a Laker or a Dodger fan, you would probably stone me. So I won't tell you what it is. And don't tell Pastor Kim or any of the other pastors. But I think about times where I've also refused to get rid of things like clothes, right? Or things I should have gotten rid of, right? When I was a kid, apparently uh, my mom, she told me that I used to wear this Mushu shirt, uh, Mushu from, from Mulan. Um, and it had all these holes in it, right? And I was growing out of it and like my belly was showing, um, but I couldn't let it go. I, I just loved it so much. I think about 
Currently, just the Hawaiian shirts I have in my closet that have rips on the, in them. Uh, I have Laker shirts that I never wear. Um, I'm afraid to get rid of them, and I'm sure Julie would love for me to get rid of them. But the point I'm trying to make is that, especially for those things that we've lost or had to throw away, whatever it is, right? We won't benefit from worrying, right, about them, right? Worrying is not going to bring these things back, right? I've given away or lost these things and it's over. I can't get them back. It's out of my control. Holding on to something too long and too tightly, it's foolish, right? Because there'll be a time, no matter what, no matter what possession it is, where we won't be able to hold on to them anymore. There's going to be a time where we have to cast them away, where they're gonna be taken away from us. So I just have to accept that times and circumstances like these, they're part of life. God has ordained them, unfortunately. And we have to learn to let go of these material things. Throughout the course of our lives, we'll gain and we'll keep and we'll lose things. Either way, whether in this life or when we die, we can't hold on to them forever. So when God in his providence brings it about, that we shouldn't, or that we should lose possession of these things we cherish, it's okay. We can let go. So now onto verse seven. It says, there's a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak. So this may refer to a time of mourning, right? Where in the Old Testament, the tearing of a garment often signified grief. And then it could also refer to the reparation of those garments, the time for sewing, representing the time after the mourning period, right? So this might be connected to the second pair of contrasts where a time of silence is proper, a proper reaction to tragedy in the Old Testament. And in other times after the tragedy passes, you are free to speak again. You are free to converse again, whether it's you who are the one who's mourning or the, you're talking to the people who are mourning. So there are going to be times when we'll sit there in silence with our friends and our family and we'll just weep, we'll mourn with them. And there will be times when we move on and go back to having normal conversations. And then finally in verse eight, Solomon says, there is a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. So these two pairs, they're connected in that love is associated with peace and hate with war. And again, it's important, right, to point out that Solomon is not advocating or prescribing for hate and war. He's simply stating the fact that this happens. He's describing that there will be seasons and times where this comes up. Last week, we went to Hawaii, as some of you know, and we decided to visit Pearl Harbor. Anything World War II for me, um, is really special and has a special place in my heart because World War II was a significant time for my family, as I assume it was for many families all over the world. But for my family, especially being Japanese American, uh, there was a lot that happened for us. My family had been in the US for a generation, right? Some were born in Hawaii even, uh, some were, were citizens. They had businesses and families, they went to school, uh, there was peace. There were friends that they had who were Americans. But all of a sudden, their lives and the lives of hundreds of millions of people around the world were turned upside down. They were forced to give up all of their possessions essentially overnight. 
their businesses, their home, they had to give up. They had to move into internment camps. Some people they were friends with soon mistrusted them and became their enemies. And around the world, places were destroyed. People were dying. But when I would talk to my grandma about it before she died, and I would ask her about you know, what it was like, of course, she mentioned it was hard for, for her and for our family. But for the most part, she kind of just talked about it very casually. Right? She talked about it in a way where life just kind of went on. And after a few years, right, the war was over. People started to rebuild and make peace and move forward. They were released from the camps and they rebuilt their lives. My grandma went to Chicago. She met my grandfather. They moved to California. They bought a house. They started a family. And then almost a decade later, another war, the Vietnam War happens. And I remember my mom, she, she still tells me about when she was a little girl, she would remember my grandma and grandpa frantically reading the newspaper to see if my uncle would be drafted and have to go to Vietnam. Thankfully he didn't. The war ended, life went on and there was peace again. So Solomon is saying that this is just life, right? At any moment there could be war. It's rare for a generation to go without seeing or experiencing war. At any moment, especially for the men here, right? We could be called to serve our country. And in the blink of an eye, our lives and the lives of our families could be changed forever. And it's something we cannot control if God has ordained it so. So after Solomon ends this poem in verse eight, he begins to reflect and draw out its implications in verses nine to 15. And so this is section two on your notes. So he's posited that God has established these different times, these different seasons in our life. And he kind of goes on and then we're kind of thinking, okay, what's the point? Okay, God has appointed these things. So what's the point? What are you trying to get at Solomon? And so he begins in verse nine with this programmatic question that we've seen earlier in the book, in the opening chapter. And we see this in chapter two as well. And that is the question of what gain does a worker have from his toil? in this life under the sun. I have seen the busyness that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. So we come back to square one. What is the point of all of this? What's the point of this thing that we call life that we experience here on earth? What is the point to these different seasons and times that we must go through in our lives and where do we and our purpose fit into all of this? In the next few verses, Solomon will, Solomon will try to answer this. In verse 11, he says, he, God, has made everything beautiful in its time. And as I mentioned, this word beautiful, it can be rendered appropriate or right or good. Solomon goes on to say also, God has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So what is he saying here? Well, the word beautiful, as I said, can mean appropriate or right. So it seems like he's saying that although things we experience in this life are toilsome and burdensome, every aspect of life is made appropriate and right by God in its time. And we should accept everything good and bad as coming from the good and so sovereign hand of God. 
And by saying God has put eternity in our hearts, he's saying that we have this sense within us that looks beyond our time here under the sun. We long to know our place in the universe and the greater meaning of all of this and where it fits against the backdrop of eternity. We ask, is there more than these appointed times in our lives under the sun? And while the answer is yes, of course, there's a greater significance to all of this. Solomon nevertheless says at the end of verse 11 that we cannot ultimately know what God has ordained for us and when he plans to bring certain things into our lives. His purposes are outside of our realm of control and knowledge. We know there is something beyond the sun, something greater and something better and eternal. But we are still creatures confined under the sun as creatures of God. So the problem we face as humans is acknowledging that there is another being in control who is above the sun and above us and whose actions are decisive over our lives. The problem we face is acknowledging and accepting that God is God and we are not. That he is the creator and ruler of the universe and we are the creatures and the subjects. He knows how to run things properly and perfectly as the all-wise, all-knowing, all-loving, and all-powerful God, and we do not, because that's not our role. We need to recognize that we are not in the driver's seats, and we need to trust the one who is driving, and just because we cannot fathom what God is doing or why, it does not mean he does not have a good, beautiful, or appropriate reason or the different seasons or times he brings into our lives. And it doesn't mean that he can't use even the good and the bad for his glory and for our good. Just because we cannot fathom a good reason for what God is doing does not mean he doesn't have one. Yes, we cannot discover and know everything Yes, that is not our prerogative. We have limitations. God chooses to withhold things from us. But the sooner we accept and embrace that he is the one in control and he is good and sovereign, then we can truly have peace. And we can accept this reality. And if we accept these things, the good and the bad, and see that they are from the hand of God, the good hand of God, and see that they are out of our control, we can actually bear through them. It is freeing to know that I don't know when or control when many of these things happen in my life. And if we're unable to let go, we'll just become fearful, anxious, stressed out people who are always on edge. We'll be frustrated and angry whenever people threaten the things we love so much, the things we so tightly grasp onto. So in verses 12 to 13, Solomon goes on to make his conclusion. He says, I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. 
also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's good, uh, gift to man. So up until this point, we can sense the frustration through Solomon's words. We can certainly feel this in the entire book, right? He's just acknowledged that the appointed times and the experiences in our lives, they're out of our control. And we're consigned to live in this fallen world where there's mourning, there's sadness, there's breaking down. And we don't control when those times end and when we have good times, when we can have joy and when we can celebrate. So what does he suggest we do in response? Well, essentially Solomon is telling us to stop trying to control things we cannot control and understand God's unfathom and stop trying to understand God's unfathomable ways in running the world. And he's saying instead, enjoy the presence and enjoy the life we do have and do our best in the things that we can control. Once we accept that all the good things we have today can be taken away tomorrow, we can live freely to cherish and enjoy the time we do have with these things. We can focus on the things we can control like doing good and serving God and others as Solomon says. We can focus on finding enjoyment in recreation and dining with friends and family, enjoying and cherishing the activities we do at work, school or at home. All of these things he says are a gift from God and they should be cherished. Finally, in verses 14 to 15, Solomon reminds us that God's work and activities is the only work that truly lasts forever. And we cannot do anything to add or take away from it. He says, I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. So he says the only proper response in all of this is that we should have a posture of fear and reverence. Again, remembering that God is the one, the only one who is truly eternal and supreme over all of these things under the sun. Try as we might, whether we like it or not, the truth is that we cannot control or change certain things in our lives. Nothing can be added or taken away from God's ordained plan for us. What he does lasts forever and the things he has brought into existence and will bring into existence are controlled by him. Nothing can alter the fundamental nature of the world and the things that God causes to happen in it. And here Solomon boils it all down to the main message of the book. Life and everything in it are hevel. They're a mere breath a vapor that does not last and which we cannot grasp. It is out of our control. The only thing that lasts, he says, and our greater purpose is a life centered on fearing and serving God. Remember in chapter 12, verse 13, at the end of the book, he says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So that is our call, Praxis, to recognize that God is in control. He brings 
what he wishes in his wisdom and in his love and sovereignty into our lives. And we can't control it ultimately. But what we can control is cherishing the good gifts God has given us and giving thanks and praise to him for them. And we can control serving him and loving others. That is our duty and that is our call. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this reality, as odd as it may seem, that we are not in control. We are not ultimately in control of our lives when times of sadness and sorrow and mourning and death enter into them, times of loss. We're also not in control ultimately of the good times that come into our lives. And we recognize God that you are the one who is in control of these things. You are the one who brings both the good and the bad in our lives and that you as the good and loving God and father over us, that you bring these things for your glory and for our good. Just as a parent may do things that a child may not understand that seem bad, but they do it out of the best interest and love for that child, God. And so may we have that childlike faith. May we trust you, Lord, knowing that you bring these things for our good and for your glory. Help us to accept that and help us to live freely knowing that our lives are in your hand and that you care for us. Help us to focus on what we can control, to serve you and to enjoy the gifts you've given us and praise you throughout. So we thank you and we praise you in Christ's name, amen.